Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Sarah St. Ong, who's an abortion rights activist or a conservative pro-life abortion rights activist and a working mother uh, in a working class family. This conversation was recorded back in June and there were some connection issues and I was going to fix them and then I forgot about it. And so it was just positioned on my YouTube channel, unlisted, unpublished, just to generate the subtitles so that a friend of mine could read them and use them for an article she was writing about the economic impacts of lockdowns upon the working lower and middle class. Well, this morning I woke up and found that YouTube had decided that this episode was medical misinformation having to do with vaccinations and with COVID. And they gave me a big long list of things that you're not allowed to say on the platform. And I went through and I couldn't find any of these things other than Sarah's opinion not to be vaccinated and her ethical quandary about the impact that not being vaccinated could have on other people, especially with regards to her staunch pro-life position. Again, I could not find anything wrong with this video. I've appealed to YouTube to go through it and to actually see if there's anything wrong with what was in this video. And I'm sure that they're not going to help me out with this. So I am suspended on that platform for a week. And I wanted to go back and show everybody else what this episode was about, because it's actually more about the economic impact and that economic impact on the middle, lower and working class is actually an election issue. So it would make sense that YouTube would want to suppress this leading up to the midterm elections, but I don't want to be conspiratorial. Maybe it was just some sort of automated thing and there's no ill will or political motivations involved. So here's Sarah. There are links to her work in the description if you find her enjoyable and engaging, as did I. Without further ado, here is Sarah St. Ong. So how did you get in contact with Holly? How did I get in contact with Holly? Holly and I, there was a letter project and Holly was actually seeking somebody um, to a pro-life person to discuss abortion who had a background in child um a specific child abuse. And I have the same background. So it was a, a conversation between the two of us online where we would write letters back and forth about our opinions and our positions on things, um, trying to ferret out, um, you know, have a, a, a kind conversation about, um, and respectful conversation about a really terrible subject, a really terrible thing that um, people experience, you know. She obviously feels very differently than I do about the abortion issue, and um, particularly because of her past, I feel very strongly about the abortion issue also because of my past. So it um, that's how we started talking, hmm. um, and then we just became friends. Hmm. So She's a sharp yeah. cookie. I like her very much. 
she is very much so. I like her very much. From afar, because we've never met. Oh, yeah. But you've written. Yeah, we've never met. In spirit, you've met. We've written, we, you know, we, we uh, message each other on Instagram or on Twitter. And she also has sent my daughter some gifts, some science-oriented women in science oriented gifts. So she sent her some books and, and, um, a machine that you build and, you know, a couple of really neat items. So, Hmm. so my daughter knows that I have a friend, Holly, who is very encouraging in terms of maths and sciences, maths. That's with an S on the end, as she will say, and, um, sciences and such. So it's a very nice, very, very nice person. And she heard about your family's struggle over the pandemic and is writing about that. She is. Um, she, we, um, yeah, she is. We haven't finalized everything and I'm still working through. Um, I know we're supposed to discuss um, more specifics later today and or maybe on Friday. We're still kind of uh, figuring some of that out. Um, but yes, she knows because she knows me and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty much an, an open book about things. I try to be, um, I try not to keep things hidden. I, it's not an oversharing thing. It's a, um, I talk and I write about, um, political issues. And I feel like if I tell everybody everything up front, then there's no secrets, nothing for anybody to find out later on. Um, but this has been, yeah, that is what, where we, uh, she learned about that was just from things that I've said over time. Mm-hmm. So you're a political theorist or journalist? I am a freelance pro-life activist. Um, I am mainly focused on abortion issues and abortion related issues. Yeah. And I write... Um, I've spoken, I do um, in-services for local clergy, pregnancy resource centers, um, different places um, where um, a particular information is needed. I focus on, uh, part of the reason that I was asked to, um, to discuss that particular subject with Holly is because my focus in pro-life activism is actually on the exceptional or hard cases so um, I, I educate people on how to discuss the difficult cases that even a lot of pro-life people have problems with. Um, in 2010, I had carried to term a pregnancy knowing that my daughter was most likely going to die. And so that's how I got involved in that. And um, we have... I have friends who focus more on um, that were conceived in rape or who conceived in rape, and they discuss that. But my focus is really um, how do we respond to women when when they've been given this terrible news and this terrible information, and how do we how do we respond to them in a life affirming way that doesn't dismiss their fears or the reality of what's you know that anticipatory grief issues and things like that, um, and you know, with clergy and clinicians and different groups of people, you know, the dynamics going to be very different depending on how you're coming at it and, and who you are. So that's what I mostly talk to people about. I 
wonder if it's possible for a woman to confront that information. Uh, let's say that her child's going to either die or be severely disabled yes. and decide to carry it to term and dedicate herself without some sort of religious faith. I, I just, I don't know if that would be possible or I, I just, I wonder what other mechanisms other than faith. Um, other than faith there um, actually, so there's a website, a very popular website called uh, perinatal popular within this context. <laughs> I should say it's not like popular with everybody um, perinatal hospice. And there is a, significant amount of information um, about that on their website about it, it's not just a religious decision um, there's there are a number of peer-reviewed studies which do show that for the woman involved um, the outcome can be much more positive if she chooses to continue the pregnancy so we have to back up from that a little bit by the time a woman has discovered that she's carrying a baby who has a fetal anomaly the reality is and i i hate to use this this word but i have to use it because it's the only appropriate word the baby is wanted this isn't an accidental pregnancy this is not a pregnancy that was intended to be aborted by the woman it's a baby that this woman has most likely started planning for, started purchasing clothing for, started, you know, the woman has imagined her life with this child already. So I don't think that religion is, is as necessary as you might think in that. And perinatal hospice has a lot of good information. There are religious organizations. Um, Be Not Afraid is a great one. Um, String of Pearls is another one. Um, there's so many out there and, and they are religious, but uh, perinatal hospice has a lot of secular sources. And I would say that the people at secular pro-life would probably uh, disagree with oh. the, the position that you have to be religious because the whole point of, you know, the bottom line of the pro-life ethic from a secular standpoint is that you have a human being who is alive and killing them is, is morally problematic. The, the, that condition doesn't change because somebody has a severe disability or they are terminally ill. Now, we can discuss, you know, compassion, but that would be an overall discussion about compassion and, you know, dignity and dying and those kind of things that mm. wouldn't just apply to a fetus. It would apply to anybody who was facing death. And the pro-life you know, pro-life movement as a whole has answered those questions, I think, in great ways, in a secular way that don't require religion. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, not even just religion, but being faced oh, with that news without some sort of guiding, overarching, transcendent principle. Like, uh, just, I'm just, I, I'm probably never capable of fully imagining the heartbreak of a mother in that situation. And I don't know the coping mechanisms that uh, come into play and the proper way to, to you know, process that information and then make a decision that it's good for all involved. I think, I think that you are correct. There would have to be some, some type of, like you say, an overarching transcendent uh, belief system. And I guess, and, and yes, I can, I can concur with that. I just don't think it necessarily would have to be religion. Yeah. Um, for me, it is because I am a religious person. And I have very openly said that 
I personally believe that the secular position on the pro-life issue can only go so far because it can tell us that we shouldn't kill humans, other humans, but it doesn't tell us why, you know? So there has to be some philosophy or religion or like you say, an overarching uh, ethical belief system involved in my opinion. Mm -hmm. That's just what I believe. But how long have you been doing this work then since 2010? Yeah. 10 years. Okay. Yep. And, um, I, I didn't expect this conversation, but I am interested in this conversation. Yeah. I, I don't know if you're totally done with this conversation. Yeah, we can talk I am. about COVID. I am absolutely. I am absolutely. Yeah. So um, the uh, the decision to change the federal level law, Roe v. Wade. Um, I don't know the position or where that's at. If it's totally dismantled if it's in abeyance right now and if the states are going to pick that up and how that's going to proceed but i do know that that's a pretty hot topic still even though the news cycle spins faster than a uh whirlpool. Yeah. Yeah. well it's it's there's news being made um they the supreme court every monday releases their decisions and so they didn't release the decision this Monday, so now we have to wait until next Monday. And the expectation is that Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned. Um, when Roe versus Wade is overturned instantaneously, there are, and I wasn't expecting this conversation either, so I don't wanna quote any numbers, but there are a number of states that, that are poised to have um, trigger laws in effect in which abortion will become illegal almost immediately. Or, or uh, overnight, it there will be Roe versus Wade will be um, in place on that Monday when that decision is handed down. If it overturns Roe versus Wade, Roe versus Wade will no longer stop those trigger laws from being enforced in those states immediately, as mm-hmm. soon as that decision comes out. So that's pretty know. big news. Then that's. Uh... It is pretty big news. It is pretty big news. It's going to take a lot of uh, work on behalf of people in your position, pro-life advocates, to uh, reveal that there's infrastructure to take care of. Yeah, it will. It would. It would be a lot easier if they stopped firebombing pregnancy resource centers. You know, which has happened three times in the last month and a half. We we would be able to take care of a lot more people if they stopped suing us and you know, destroying our resources. What's a a pregnancy resource center, generally speaking? Um, Well, it depends on the situation. There are are pregnancy resources centers that are just places where women can go to receive. um, They can receive, they're not, there are some that are medical centers and some that aren't. And that's where you hear a lot of the, uh, the dispute from pro-choice organizations, you can generally get in all of them, you can get pregnancy tests. Um, In a good proportion of them, you can get a diagnostic or non-diagnostic ultrasound. So a dating ultrasound, it's not um, the Mm. thorough ultrasound that you get in an OBGYN, but it can be, Um, you know, um, most of them are, or a good number of them are staffed with volunteers. They do, um, they, they do everything that somebody from us, you know, any social service office, they help you connect with resources through the state. They help you connect with local resources from individual people who have pledged their time and their money and their resources to these centers to assure that women have a place to go if they find themselves 
in a pregnancy where they may need a little bit more support. There are also full medical um, pregnancy resource centers. We have um, near us um, in Connecticut, there's one that has a well baby clinic up to a year old. They do full OBGYN services. Um, they have women's academies. They have a young men's academy, which is a charter school for at-risk youth. They run a homeless shelter or they coordinate. They don't have the homeless shelter for men anymore, but they coordinate with somebody else to do that. So Pregnancy Resource Center is a huge, you know, you have the Guiding Star Centers, which I, I don't know if technically they're Pregnancy Resource Centers, but Guiding Star Centers are non, um, they are OBGYN offices or women's wellness offices that don't, they work with women's bodies to assure that um, they don't, you know, distribute hormones to women for everything under the sun that might be wrong with them. They try to utilize natural methods um, to assure if you're trying to avoid conception, you're trying to get, you know, to conceive everything like that. And those are medically staffed offices as well. So there's a, a large variety out there of what people can offer. Um, it just depends on where you're talking about and what you're talking about and what the local community has given their time and their money to. And you're saying that these are being, these resources are being attacked. Uh, there have been, yeah, there've been three of them firebombed, I think in the last month and a half. Um, because some, the, the pro-abortion side or the militant pro-abortion side, it wants to shut off resources, alternatives to abortion, or are they just um, mad that there's pro-life? They're, they <laughs> they're just mad. They're just mad. Um, on the, they leave the, the notes that they leave on them spray painted on the door, say things like if abortion is not safe, then neither are you. Uh, they oh. try to dox that. I know there was a pro-life, um, volunteer at one center in Texas about a month ago who said they were trying to dox. They were following the workers home and trying to figure out where they lived and things like that. But this is, this is, a new, and what I'm talking about, I'm not speaking hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating. They literally firebombed a pro-life pregnancy resource center within the last week. It's not on the news and you don't hear the president talking about that, but you know, you know, we hear about a lot of other things. So yeah, this is real. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. Mm -hmm. One of the low level uh, arguments um, that is bandied about, especially since the uh, response to the pandemic began is the notion of bodily autonomy. And there's a caricature of well, the right caricatures, the left and the left caricatures, the right and the right will say that they, they don't, the right doesn't want the government intruding on their bodily autonomy and the left doesn't want the government intruding on their bodily autonomy. And the COVID response with the vaccines and the masks and stuff, that was the government overreaching into, uh, from, from a basic right point of view, that's the government overreaching. The left will say that, you know, the, that ab abortion bans are an overreach uh, into bodily autonomy. Uh, this is a caricature, but it's also a segue to what we we're originally going to talk about. Yeah. Do you, do you parse that? How do you parse that? That um, whether or not a person chooses to wear a mask. Um, well, okay. I have to preface this by saying I, I am a religious person. I'm a Christian person. And I believe I have a, a moral on an individual level. I have a moral obligation to love my neighbor. So I should say that 
because this is a heated subject, you all these heated subjects to start out with. The, the rest of this is going to be pretty boring compared to the beginning of this conversation. But um, I think that um, there's a difference between in the autonomy issue between I'm not killing if if I were to choose not to be vaccinated or not to wear a mask, I am not directly participating in somebody else, the killing of another human being. The side effect of me not doing those things may or may not contribute to somebody's um, ill health. Um, I, you know, I have been very open about the fact that I, I am not vaccinated, but I have no problem wearing a mask if somebody requests me to do so. Um, I, you know, if I have a store locally that says that asks me to put on a mask, I will walk. I assume that there is somebody in that store who may be dealing with an autoimmune disorder or some kind of medical issue that I don't know about because I don't know. So I'm not going to fight or argue with somebody about that. But I also have no obligation to inject something into my body on the off chance that I may come up to somebody and that 1% of the people may end up killing somebody. I may end up dying. And I need to preface that because I said, I do believe I, I love my, I need to love my neighbor. Um, 100% of the children that are aborted die. Like that's a 100%. Well, there's mm. always those anomalous stories, but 100% on if, and there's no defense that they have themselves against being killed in the womb. There's, there's just is none. It's if I choose not to get vaccinated, somebody or not to wear a mask, somebody who is part of that 1% of people who may be affected by me not being vaccinated or not wearing a mask have a number of options on how they're going to interact and engage with the outside world that a, a fetus does not have. They have the fetus inside somebody's body has no choices. They're stuck there. The choices that other people make are there are, are a life and death. And I am I'm really I'm even mm. hesitant to phrase that because I'm not trying to be callous. I'm 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 genuinely not. I'm you know, and this this is a very people decide that you're not pro-life or you're this or you're that because of a lot of different um, a lot of different mentalities and just pro-life to is abortion and euthanasia. Those are the only things that um, the pro-life ethic deals with. And the autonomy, we can talk about autonomy, but if we're going to talk about autonomy, which only one of those things directly kills a human being virtually 100% of the time it's enacted. You know, we could say the same about um, if uh, how many people are killed by cars every day. So should I not drive my car because people have car accidents, should I, you know, there are such a multitude of things that we do on a, I don't know if you've ever watched that show, The Good Place. Uh, I watched the first season a while ago. Well, they, they talk, they kind of, the whole over the, you know, the, the arch, you know, the narrative of that is that, um, nobody, we're never going to be able to do anything to, we're never going to be able, and I hate to say that because I just told you I was Christian, but, um, hmm. we're, 
every decision we make in our lives is going to affect somebody. And at times it may affect somebody negatively. And we run the risk of, uh, you know, scrupulosity if we start, um, you know, if we're not cautious with that, I just, I think that this is a case where they're two completely different things. I, I think they, they literally have no, no relation. The autonomy for me to do something to myself that, that might have something to do with somebody else down the line four months from now is nothing compared to uh, when we're talking about autonomy with another human being who is 100% going to die because I've decided that I don't want to be pregnant when 99% of the time that's Mm -hmm. happened because I've engaged in a consensual activity that often results in pregnancy. You know, I just don't see them being the same at all, Mm -hmm. like at all. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The New York, you, so you guys were in New York City? We're outside of New York City, about an hour north of New York City in the Hudson Valley. And so is New York State as intense as New York City uh, with the in lockdowns? In what way? In, with the lockdowns oh, lockdown? and how, how, how lockdown has affected you. Where did that um, New, New York City itself was locked down for a lot longer yeah. um, than the rest of the state. There were, um, you know, when Cuomo enacted a lot of the... Uh, his directives, um, there was a lot of, there wasn't leeway, but there were steps that could be attained at a certain point that would allow you to release yourself from certain aspects of lockdown. Um, I think that just because the population is dispersed over a larger area and there are fewer people, it was easier for, once you got out of the city, it was easier for some areas to, you know, release themselves from lockdown. Um, I don't, I think the law applied the same everywhere. The laws in New York city were no different. I think I'm not 100, but I think it was how they were enacted based on the cases of COVID. So they lasted a lot longer with things because they kept their caseload was higher for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, if they would have had a lower caseload like we did in the Hudson Valley areas, then they may have ended their lockdowns earlier. And I, I believe that's how it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just congestion, population. Yeah. Um, but you, your family was particularly impacted negatively. Well, yeah, we, we have been. Um, we have, um, you know, we have essentially lost our housing. Um, we've lost our business. Um, you know, if it, if it weren't for, we've lived in the house that we, we rent for 10 years and the, uh, owner sold the property or, or, you know, he has sold the property. And the only reason we are still living where we are, well, there's, there's a lot of legal issues with that, but we, um, we essentially lost everything because directly because of these lockdowns, 
Um, New York State, unlike Connecticut and New Jersey and Pennsylvania and all the states like in our area, New York State shut down construction, which none of the other ever in all the other in all the other surrounding states, mostly in the tri-state area, construction was considered an essential um, service. Mm-hmm. And in New York, it was in the beginning, it was. And then I, you know, I believe it may have been union workers who um, in those projects that were more unionized that um, complained mm-hmm. and had enough sway to be able to get Cuomo to shut down all construction except for um, low income housing, hospitals, you know, uh, medical facilities and things along those lines. Oh, and government buildings were still allowed to be built. But any um, any housing that wasn't low income was stopped immediately. And, and you could go ahead, I'm sorry. These these union folk didn't care that they would be out of work. I assume and like I said, I presume it was it, okay. what it was, I think. Um, and that's that's a part of the issue is with again the population congestion. Um I try to be charitable and say that people didn't know what was going on in the beginning and they were just afraid. You know, we, we got so much fear mongering and, um, and we, we had somebody that we know passed away and, and we have somebody who, um, a family member who's in the hospital and will be there the rest of their life because of the lack of oxygen, they got COVID. Um, so we're not in any way saying it's not serious and it's not, but it, it's not, you know, there was a lot of misinformation, I think, and a lot of people were very frightened. And in some of those buildings in the city, like I said, the population is so condensed there that um, I think they were afraid of being in the same area in too close quarters with people. You know, it was just they felt that there was. But it's funny because New Jersey didn't feel that way and Connecticut didn't feel that way. Pennsylvania didn't feel that way. New Hampshire, you know, nowhere else. It was just in New York that they felt that they could not be together in the same space without being unsafe. And how did that impact your family then? So our family, we were shut down um, during the completely shut down during the during the shutdown. Um, We were um, working. um, Okay, let me backtrack. We had for the few years before that, we had already been struggling and we had, um, it, it was just a lot of struggle. Um, and we had finally gotten to the point at the end of 2019, we had kind of, we were not doing well, you know, there's a little Rob Peter to pay Paul kind of stuff. But at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, we were kind of able to breathe. And then for 2020, we actually in January of 2020, we had a year's worth of work mapped out. Like my husband had one of those little dry erase calendars on the, in the office and every week of the entire year was booked for an entire year. That was the first time I think that that has ever happened or had at least happened for the, a couple years previous. We were, we were always busy, but it was always hunting, hunting, hunting within a four month time period. You know what I mean? You know, we, and I'm losing that loosely. Um, we always worked. We were always, my husband is, is a very hard worker. He's a very good worker and very skilled at what he does. Um, but it was always kind of seeking, seeking. So this is the first time, like I said, a year and all of that just was gone within the space. And it was within the space of a few days because 
initially, um, Cuomo did not shut down construction in New York um, until he got pressured back to, to shut it down. Initially, construction, all construction was considered essential. Um, it took about a week. And so, you know, my stepson um, lives in the city and he came down to stay with us because for the entire shutdown because he said, I, I, there's nothing to do. He worked in a restaurant bar and he was like, I, I can't, there's no work here. I can't do anything. He came down with us and even with the, him living in the house with us. So the way the laws worked was if you were a single contractor on a job by yourself, you could stay there without the threat of a fine but no more than one person could be on a job site. We applied for a waiver because they were living in the same house and traveling together. We felt that that should count as almost like one person. We're not going anywhere. This was the beginning. Everything was shut down, you know? Um, and we didn't even get an answer back about the waiver. They just sent us an email back with a highlighted part about you can only have one person on the site. Uh, my husband and him went down to go take care of something at one of the jobs. And within an hour of them showing up on the job, we don't know, you know, the home inspector came by and threatened them with a $10,000 fine if they did not leave. Um, and that's pretty much how everything went here. Almost all of our jobs that were in that time frame of that, like, you know, March, April, May were all New York jobs. Um, my husband was able to like, scramble and move a couple things around but it it a bunch of uh, uh, at least three or four of those jobs canceled by the end of it so you know we didn't have we ended up having one contract job left after that whole year of work that we had had set aside we had one contract job and my husband has been working at when he finished that contract job we are now working as he's working as an hourly employee for this company but we're not an employee He's working hourly, getting an hourly pay, but so he's working there for an hourly wage, but we're still not employees. So we're paying for our own workers comp and our own um, liability insurances. We have to pay the massive um, auto insurances, which are really high when you're in construction. Um, and so it's kind of like, we're not getting the benefit of being an employee and having that half of those bills taken care of by somebody else, but we're not making too much more now than what an employee wage would be to make up for the difference. Um, if this man who he's been working for, it's a very large estate. If he would not have been needed my husband for a job, I don't think we, we would not have any work. Um, mm. We've gotten a few calls from people over the last few months, but that's another conundrum. Um, previous to what has happened when we would get, we would get a set of architectural plans and site plans and, a, you know, a book with everything listed in it, what we were doing and for it, pricing out a job, you know, a three weeks worth of work job, say something that we were going to do that took my husband a full two and a half days or so of just estimating for the materials and the time that doesn't account for meetings that he would be having to go through with the site supervisors, with architects, homeowners, people, you know, the walkthroughs and everything that's entailed. So when you're talking about a small construction business, and I'm going to assume it's with a lot of other businesses, there is a lot of time that you're investing into that business that you 
you're you're kind of getting paid on the back end. Like you can you can figure that into your proposals, but that's he can't do that right now because he's having to work hourly for less than what we were making before COVID. So he can't even like we've had three calls within the last um month and a half that he's just kind of we've kind of said, okay, how much did we charge for this job six months or six months before COVID? Let's adjust for inflation and add a couple dollars onto that. We have no real knowledge of I mean we have an estimate that that our prices that we're giving out are correct, but we we don't have the time to sit down and estimate anything or um, the office work that's required in order to run a construction company. It's just not, he's essentially an employee now. So we, we don't have the ability to run our business anymore. It's, so, it's gone. So basically the way that your governor or your state enacted its COVID restrictions, uh, decimated your business, and you guys have kind of went down a notch to just employees. So you need yeah. time to get back into business mode. Well, we need, yeah, we need, well, he, you know, it, it would be lovely if somebody would walk up to us and when we got one of those estimates and we turned in an estimate to somebody and they said, oh, we want to hire you, here's 30% of, you know, which you do when you're, well, we wouldn't want to do that though, because that'd be again, robbing Peter to pay Paul kind of thing. But um, we are right now, we need the, and I, and I want to be clear too, we're not the only people that are, I, I've talk to people online. There are a lot of businesses that are, that are s smaller businesses that are going through the same exact thing that you don't, you're having to scramble to find whatever you can to make your household ends meet. So the business that you spent years, my husband's been doing this for 30 years. You know, this is not a 30 year business. I think this business we started like um, 2014 or 2015, but this has been a business that we've put our, our heart and our souls and our energy. It was a 24 hour, seven day a week job, yeah. you know, and it's just gone. And we don't have the ability to, we don't have the ability to recoup and a, you know, stimulus and PPP loans and these, none of those, the PPP loan that we got was less than what we were grossing for a month. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not enough to, we can't get that time back that we lost and we can't get the contracts that were canceled that were lost. And we can't, the, the, the state government and the federal government can't give us back what we built. And it's, you know, it, it's very difficult for us and for other businesses that, that I've talked to. I'm more vocal about that kind of stuff than my husband is, but, um, it's very, it's very frustrating. It's very, um, I can't say that there's, you know, I'm not the type of person to, to internalize bitterness. I'm, that's just not my personality, but I can see where a lot of people could. Um, it, it's just, it's very difficult to contemplate ever finding a solution to this being that we can't move away now from what we're doing. We can't, my husband can't take a day and I can't estimate those jobs. I can write invoices and I can do office work and I can, 
I can do office work. I can make the copies and I can call the architects and I can do these things, but I can't go to a job and, and in my head calculate how much lumber I'm going to need for something or how much of this or who I'm going to have to hire as a subcontractor on a job that we're doing, which person am I going to use to, to do this particular job? Because this is their special, I can't do those things. So he would have to make a choice between being at work for a day, working at a job that's not even paying our bills because we are, we're not paying our bills. We're not, we're, you know, not even paying our jobs, our bills or take three days off to properly estimate a job that we've been called for, you know, we're having to make a choice between that. And there is no, neither of those choices is something that is, um, they're actually not an op. Neither of those choices is an option for us. If we have any hope of moving forward in anything, you know, we've, we've done the attempting to work for another company. We've done the, you know, we're, my husband's 57. I'm 47. You know, it's, it's, we're not young, you know, we're not, you know, we're not just out of college. Um, this Hmm. is, it's just there. We're optionless at this point. And it's so, essentially, pardon me, I'm sorry. Yeah, so so the what what's happened is that you, you guys were, your business was decimated or demolished. It by, was absolutely decimated. We um, And now you're only, in a position where you're stuck and take uh, some sort of gift of God or somebody like plopping down money um, somehow. But even, so you guys are kind of stuck in, in a lower position than you were. And while you're stuck there, inflation is swelling and everything becomes more and more and more and more expensive. It does become more and more expensive. Everything is more expensive. Um, So my husband has to drive also about an hour and a half away every day to go to work. So he's doing a round trip an hour and a half away on almost $6 a gallon gas now. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it is inflation. Everything is more expensive food. I, before COVID, I could budget our entire family and we have three, well, two adults. I have an older teenage son and then a nine-year-old and, um, I could, I'm, I'm not kidding you. I could budget our entire family on about $200 or less a week, depending on, I was, very rigid though, very rigid on, on what I bought. And it wasn't like the best cuts of steak and it wasn't this and mm-hmm. people are not going to like this, but my husband was a hunter. So, you know what I mean? Oh, there, we, there were ways that we, uh, worked around it. And now I walk into the grocery store and I'm, if I bought 200, first of all, I don't have $200 a week to spend on groceries. We get paid now with the job that we're doing every two weeks, and I might use $250 in those two weeks that I'm spending on groceries. Um, You know, I I might spend a little more than that, but I'm definitely not spending $500 every two weeks on groceries at this point, Um, or $400. Very, very, very limited, very cautious. I work in a restaurant. I bring food home. We're like literally bringing, we're not bringing the, I'm not bringing the food home. I'm bringing the food home. So like, oh, I don't have to buy that. Oh, I don't have to buy that, you know? Um, And so it's, uh, it's inflation is definitely, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist. I'm not a 
I'm a feelings person. I'm not a finance person. So I don't know everything. I don't know who's to blame in that respect. I, I, you know, well, we know just, it's not Joe Biden because he, he's blamed everybody else. So yeah, well, like, uh, well, you know what it is. I'm I, I'm not going to lie. I I obviously I assume that it's what's happening now, but you know you'll see people post Well, this and this mechanism and this what's happened four years ago and six years ago we did this and I'm like I I am so lost in everything that's going on. I just know I need to put gas in the car and I need to buy groceries. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. I don't care whose fault it is. I just need to be able to live. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, and I think that there, again, there are a lot of people that feel the same way. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, so I that story is it's an anecdote, but a lot of people are going to be uh, resonate and and see that. Um, And going forward, what are your options? What are our options? What what do we do? So our options, what we're looking at now is um, well, there are a few of them. Um, some of the options that we have investigated and some of these are still under investigation and some of them are, are we've kind of issued and decided that they were not going to do well. Um, so first of all, um, we had figured out financially how much, you know, we need to make to be able to function and be able to, you know, put a little side. We have that. I am currently in an intense search for a remote only job outside of what I'm doing now. Um, remote only just because we don't know where we're going to live and I can't start a new job that I need. Plus, plus we only own one car and my husband has to be using that. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, um, so remote migration, um, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, that's what, yeah. And then if I have a job that's remote, that's not tied because some remote jobs you have to be living, that's not tied to a physical space, then if we move to Hawaii, Hawaii was a, I wouldn't want to move to Hawaii, but like I was thinking of the farthest place I could away, then I would be able to have the same job. Um, we've looked at Arizona, we've, um, Arizona, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, um, because those are places that we have people that we know, and we would still be able to maintain somewhat of a support system, emotional support. Um, um, and um, we have contemplated, I have researched getting my husband some kind of the security clearance to be able to work overseas as a uh, uh, government contractor. Like a mercenary? Um, no, civilian, no, Ghost building, like contract. Pummeling Russians on the fields yeah, of Ukraine. You know, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think, yeah, I think he's. I don't know if he would enjoy that. I I will ask him. Um, But he, uh, you know, looking at um, contracting and construction jobs overseas that are on, you know, American bases, places that want civilians. I've looked into finding the clearance for that. 
Um, we have looked at jobs like I am not, he used to work on a fishing boat in Maine. He, we have looked at jobs that like going to Alaska and him working for, hmm. you know, six months out of the year and then coming home, you know, we've, if, if there's an idea that somebody has done it or has thought of it, we've, we've investigated it. We've looked at using headhunters to find, um, employment, um, Again, like I said, though, part of the problem is he's 57 years old and I'm 47 years old and neither one of us have a college degree. So even with construction, um, construction management jobs, construction, things that he would be able to kind of seg into as he gets older, um, they want young people with bachelor's degrees. You know, a lot of that, um, our, our biggest benefit and, and blessing is that my husband is incredibly skilled at what he does. If there was a doctor of carpentry, he would be the doctor of carpentry. I was trying to think of, he would be a heart yeah. surgeon of carpentry if there was a doctor of carpentry. And, um, and we have managed what the reason we've managed the longevity that we have is because he is an incredibly hard worker and he is very knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. He has been doing this for a very long time, you know? So well, I'm just, I'm just thinking, uh, with, uh, the economy going the way it is, the inflation stuff, and also environmental regulations most likely getting tighter and tighter and tighter. The the squeeze that's going to happen on the Gen X working class is going to be incredible. It is going to be incredible. Yeah, the millennials will do all the bitching, but we're we're already stuck with families and stuff like that. Well, yeah, not millennials. I guess they're already screwed, but Gen Z have, and stuff like that. My children are all millennials, and none of them have families. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so you know, um, and that was a that was a dig. If any of them watch this, because I'm always <laughs> like, can somebody please just please think one of you, just one of you, and they're all like, oh, you're nuts because of the reasons that you're talking about. They're like, you're insane. Um, my husband says I'm insane too, but mm-hmm. uh, babies. Um, but yeah, it it is going to be much harder, and it's going to be. Um, I don't think, I think that what we're experiencing um, right now is going to be experiencing, experienced by more people. I think it just hasn't reached kind of, you know, as everything starts fluctuating, I, I think that m- other industries are going to see the same kind of problems that we're seeing now. And it's unfortunate Um you know, I think this is going to catch up with everybody. What's happening to us? I think that mm-hmm. it's not going away. This isn't. It's not mm-hmm. stopping. Yeah. Well, the the one issue, which is, it's not an important issue, but it's an issue that um, has important ramifications, is that the laptop Zoom working class are disconnected from the. Um, yeah, my husband calls them the the pajama class. Yeah, so the pajama class, we're the ones who are making all yeah. the stories and choosing what's important, and and we 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 make the things trend. We're really distant from uh, unless we have relatives or, or faced uh, with our parents or, or cousins or whatever uh, with the reality of the you know the collapse of the blue the working class working, and yeah. and then you know all the regulations and all the fancy pants economic hoo-ha that's going on um we're disconnected from the suffering and that's going to butt us in the butt because i think that the only reason that we exist is because we are you know riding on the coattails of the people who did the work uh, around us and 
behind us and in front of us, you know, in time. So, well, somebody, somebody has to uh, fix your air conditioners and somebody has to, you know, somebody has to do all the things that you need, you know, you can video and code and do all, all you want, but if you don't have the electrician, that's gonna, you know, connect the electricity to your, to your house, then it, it none of that's really going to matter, you know? And, um, I think, you know, we use the word infrastructure a lot, like, you know, when you hear in politicians, but mm -hmm. I, I think that there is some value to us having more conversations about what that means, because it doesn't just mean having the roads repaved, you know, our houses are part of the infrastructure, everything yeah. that we, you know, when we go down to the mall, that's part of the infrastructure, everything is part of, you know, and all these things are physical realities that have to be built and have to be maintained, and they have to be you know, the materials to create them have to come mm. from somewhere. Yeah. You know, the skill and the materials. Yeah. 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 And that's a whole, you know, and that's, you know, it, we are, I think that skilled labor is very important to our society as a whole, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I think that, you know, we had a little push for, you know, with people talking about, well, we need to, uh, we need to stop insisting that everybody go to college and, you know, we need to have people come, you know, going to trade schools and this and that and the other thing. But when, when you can have everything shut down, like, and I think that that's the biggest issue. You can have everything shut down. Um, like we did. It's a lot. I think that you're going to find it's a lot harder to find people who are willing to do those things that they, when they know it can just be taken away from them in a minute. Mm. And you funny know, money it, printed to get them through a few Yeah, months, to get yeah. through a, a problem, you know, when they're getting $600 a month for sitting at home, Yeah. you know, um, they're not, uh, I mean, we didn't get $600 a month, you know, um, my employer paid me my regular, my regular pay but to stay home. And at the time I was like, wow, this is awesome. What a great caring employer until I realized why, <laughs> because they didn't want to pay this, the unemployment for, you know, for everybody that was there and, hmm. you know, that they had employed for them. And I was, it was less expensive to pay us our regular salaries than wow. it was because it's very low paying. I, I work at very low paying unskilled workout. I have a part-time job and then a full-time, you know, I, I work yeah. multiple jobs too. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's unfortunate. Well, um, every story counts for something. I know data and anecdote are two different things and lived experience is, uh, used to manipulate various different political conversations, but it's still, yes. we live experience. We can't get, there's no other kind of experience. Um, uh, there's no undead experience, but there is data, which is kind of the pale shadow of experience. So there speaking is. out and telling the story and sharing it like you did now well, and through Holly and me is just a little bit, a piece of the puzzle. Well, there is, and there is data to, you know, when you, when you look at it, 84% yeah. of, of, you know, American jobs or 49% of American jobs are provided by small businesses. 84% hmm. of businesses in the United States employ less than 500 people. So they're considered small businesses mm -hmm. when you think of, and then, um, they had a, an extra 200,000 
um, businesses closed than they ex than they would have expected in the normal course of a year. Like I guess four thousand, four hundred thousand jobs, small businesses closed. You know, recycled every year. It's just the normal status yeah, quo. Yeah, yeah. And in the first year after COVID, an extra two hundred thousand small businesses closed and were shuttered. And when you think about when we think about that, um, you know that kind of stagnation that that's going to eventually, if, if that trend were to continue the stagnation that would happen because of that, and then contemplate all those small businesses closing and then contemplate the pajama class that is moving into areas with their remote jobs that have a lot of money to buy up the houses and the people who are living in those communities who now don't own a nail salon anymore and they don't own this and they're, you know, they're working low wage, low paying job. You know, it's just, I just see the future, all, all the, you know, you can hear a few anecdotes from people like me or, you know, there's a lot of people like that out there that I've discussed, you know, this with, um, the, all those little tiny anecdotes, like I said, 49% of Americans work for, um, small businesses and 24%, I think of those jobs, there was something 29%, 24% of those jobs were at risk at this point. Mm -hmm. That's becomes more than an anecdote. And it's very scary and it's very dangerous for our society to have so many people in such a tenuous situation. Mm -hmm. You know, the, everything civil in a society is rooted in, you know, food security, the fact that people feel secure and safe to be able to feed their families. What's going to happen when these small businesses, you know, the domino effect of things start closing and closing and closing and closing, and people can't feed their family. This is a lot more important, I think, than people are yeah. really, um, a lot more important than people might think it is. Yeah. You know, like you said, I'm just one story, an anecdote of a story yeah. of something that's happening to a lot of people. Yeah, it's it's odd that this is the reality. And uh, there's just a I, I see a tendency uh, in the pajama class or the kids these days to scoff yeah. at work. There's this like weird tidal wave of people just thinking that work is uh, oppression. And if enough people believe in that because they're getting paid funny money from the government to not work and then they're watching, they're just, they're so disconnected from reality. They're so disconnected from family. They're so disconnected from community other than a virtual community of people who echo chamberly agree with their opinions. It's eventually something's going to give. Um, hopefully it's not a collapse, but, uh, you know, kind of like the dam yeah. like starts to crack and we can kind of fix it and stuff, but the dam is certainly okay. cracking. It is. And I think, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because I have, you know, and I, I hate to bring, um, I hate to bring this kind of, you know, I try to be even handed, but, you know, as, as, as a woman in America, despite all the terrible things that you hear about how America treats women because of the current Supreme court decision, um, I think that, um, I am living in one of the freest times that I could have ever lived in history in one of, it may not be the, at this point, I don't know what the demographics are, but one of the freest and um, most permissive societies that women have ever lived in and where I have the most opportunity. And it's, it's very frightening to me to think of if that were to collapse or even if there were just enough cracks in it to 
cause serious disruption, what that means for me. And, and of course my sons, my husband, but what that usually it's women and children who end up doing worse in certain ways. You know, men, obviously we know they go to war their The workload becomes harder for them when things start, um, Mm-hmm. deteriorating, you know, but I think of my daughter, like what kind of future am I, is this going to end up leaving for her in the big picture? Not my mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. What is, mm-hmm. what is her future going to be like? You know? Yeah. Well, you know, if it, if it's bad enough, at least the environment will be saved um, because the humans yeah. will be gone. The earth will be the, the, you know, the earth will be plentiful um, with does with and rabbits and, and lizards. Or, yeah. Yeah. Well, at least we'll be able to eat them then. Not the lizards, <laughs> no. you know. Well, I guess then we'll have food security, you know. <laughs> Each other, <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it is it is it is disappointing. Yeah, it is disappointing. Yeah. Well, um, Sarah, sorry to give you a chance to completely depress my audience and be <laughs> such a Debbie Downer, but um, w- what gives you hope? In your um. Life? Well, I, I am, I am religious. I'm sorry. I know maybe not everybody is, but I definitely believe, um, I definitely believe that there's, there's always a reason to think that things are going to be better. I, I am a a strangely optimistic person. And when I say strangely, because I've had really awful things happen, but I, I, I don't know. I just, I always think like, you know, for me, whenever things have gotten really terrible, there's always been some good in it that God has brought to me. Um, and I'm not talking about like financial or tangible, just, you know, peace. And, um, I think that we've been helped by a lot of people. There are people that I, there are people that I didn't even know we had rent, um, during COVID we had done, um, our landlord who we rent our house from had refused to take any of the state funds for any rental or anything like that. So we continued to pay our rent because we didn't want to face an eviction. Once the moratorium ran out, we continued to pay our rent even when we weren't working. And we had a number of people who just really helped us with that and made sure that we had food on our table. Um, the motivational messages, I have a number of prayer journals from a number of lovely women who I have met (laughs) online. Um, someone keeps buying the books for me off of my public wish list on Amazon, which is whoever you are. Um, those kind of things give me help because it seems like such a small thing, but it makes me think that if people, we can do so much good for each other if we really choose to. And I'm, I am not a big government person. You know, a lot of times I think people like, I'm very like, we need to help. We need to help. We need to help in talking to people. And I've always like, even if I only have $10, I will, if somebody has a need, I will send that $10 to that person. I will buy a baby rattle off of somebody's baby shower list on, on Twitter or something. If I have $3, I I'm like, Oh, I can do something for this person. And I think that if everybody just thinks that instead of thinking, because I can't go big and do something, I'm just not going to do anything at all. I think that the more that we realize that even those small little things that we do for one another, they, they end up number one, they make people feel good and they make people feel like, Maybe you're not so alone in your situation and maybe, you know, I, I don't have the money to go and, 
buy a house and I, we only have one car, but I know that there's people out there who are thinking of us and who care for us. And that's a lot for me. That, that means a lot to me. And mm-hmm. just, you know, the fact that I know that people are willing to even do the small things, a lot of small things together can become something really big. If people are willing to put in the work and willing to put in the effort to, um, to contribute. And I want to be very clear. I'm not talking about money at all. I'm talking about, you know, if, you know, if, if your neighbor is needs help with something and they don't have the money to, to do whatever. Okay. Perfect example. I, I say that we only have one car. I have a friend who had had a spare car. Um, she doesn't want to sell it, but she has been letting me use, cause I, I ran into a deer in November and my car, well, I didn't, the deer ran in front of me on the highway, totaled my car. Um, there was a 10 year old, you know, old car. It wasn't, but it, it ran and it was my car. She's been allowing me to utilize her car. I, you know, I, I've, and that small thing has made such a difference. If you don't have something that big to help somebody with, you can, you know, if you know a single mom, bring her dinner one night and those little tiny things that, that are so much more important to show somebody that you, you care, you're thinking about them, that you love them and that their well being matters to you. I think, um, when people do those kind of things, that's what gives me hope, you know? And that might be what saves the dam from collapsing. And that, that's why I do feel hopeful and I hope that it's not all going to collapse. I am not a pessimistic person. I don't have I don't think I have the ability to be a pessimist. I don't know why. I don't know. It's just because so much has happened. I'm like, I, I don't know what, but, um, I don't know. I, and I, I, like I said, I, I tend not to be a bitter, I have bitter moments like everybody does where I'm, why me, you know, kind of things, but those are very few and far between. I just, I just don't have it in me. And I think that if we all, um, you know, like, you know, in the Bible, we can do this Bible, we can do it the to each their own, you know, whatever, from each, whatever they can give. And I don't know, but the Bible talks about the widow's might, you know, if that widow could give her little might, and that was so mighty and powerful, then what can I do today to go make somebody else's life easier? And, you know, if all of us thought that way, and in the circle of people, that's another thing, too. I think that I, I learned a really good lesson from somebody once, probably about like five or six years ago, and I was in church and I was talking that my our pastor was talking about the fact that we have a real big tendency to go help people that are really far away that we don't have to smell or see or look at. But if we help the circles of people who we know, and then those people can help those circles of people they know, and we continue doing that out like that, imagine how much change that we could make on a personal level that interpersonally that is so much more meaningful and, you know, humanizing is going to be, it is humanizing. And that's all that I'm about. When I say I am, I, you will see, and I, you know, if you see like on Twitter, I will say, I am not, I don't consider myself a consistent life ethic person because that's more of a political position. That doesn't mean that I don't believe that part of my personal pro-life ethic isn't that, Every single person that I see that stands in front of me is created in the image of God. And I have an obligation 
I get smarty sometimes, you know, I I get sassy, but I have a moral obligation to humanize each person that's standing in front of me and make sure that I'm treating them like they were made in the image of God. And that makes it very hard to pass somebody by when they're asking for your help, you know, Hmm. for me, it does. I don't know, you know. Well, thank you for the homily at the end. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> to, no, I mean just to 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 give the give the sunny side of the yeah, equation. No. Yeah, yeah. And so, where can people uh, read your writing and find your work? Um, so I have. Um, I'm very active. I like Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. I started a Substack under Holly's advisement. Um, she had suggested that I might write, um, the problem, part of the problem with the regular writing for me is that so much is going on right now. And so much of what is going on is, is personal. And I'm not, I don't think people want to read about my problems. (laughs) You know what I mean? That, that becomes a little maudlin after a while, (laughs) you know, like, oh, this is, everything stinks again today, (laughs) nothing new. But um, I do have a Substack that I plan on writing more about. I write on Twitter. I write occasionally at the Federalist. Um, and I know people have very strong opinions about the Federalist. I write about pro-life stuff and how you can help people and how laws are not portrayed properly. I write about a lot of different things, but it's mostly in the pro-life realm. Um, mm. But yeah, that's pretty much where I am right now. I have a Facebook page, but Facebook is more um, older crowd of people, I think, passing back and forth. So what's your substack called? Uh, I believe it is Sarah St. Ange. It's just Sarah St. Ange. It's in my, I have a link tree in my Twitter profile, which is Mm -hmm. she underscore things underscore joy. And um, I have a link tree and the substack is listed there. Um, So yeah, and that will be more active because I have received messages from a couple of friends who are tr- encouraging me um, to write about other homilies and other things like that. You know, what you were just mm-hmm. asking about, you know, where to find hope without being maudlin and schmarmy. So that would be where you would find me. Well, thank you for sharing your story with my audience, Sarah. It was, thank you. Uh, pleasant to meet you. Thank you for the opportunity to share a story. And just keep in mind, like, if you're not interested in my story and my husband's, my family's story, that there are so many people out here going through the same thing. Check on your neighbor, you know, the guy who was the electrician three, you know, three months ago that you met. These people, we're, everybody's suffering right now, you know, and it's very hard. But at least we can be in it together. Yes, we can. And help each other out. Yes, most definitely.